You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John chapter 21. John 21, as we continue our study of John's Gospel. I'm going to be looking at verses 15, 16, and 17. John 21, verses 15, 16, and 17. I think we probably have about two more messages in John. We could do many, many more, but... Um, and I would, you know, there's going to be a lot of praying between now and then, so I wouldn't want to be locked into it. But I'm thinking two more messages: one on the cost of discipleship, and one on the greatness of Christ. And we'll be bringing this uh, long, lengthy study to a conclusion. But until then, verse 15, we find these words: When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these?" And he said to him, "Yes, Lord, you know that I love you." He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, Father, we desire to approach you, O Lord. Uh, With this prayer, we make full recognition that, Lord, we require your grace. If we're to profit from this reading, if we're to profit from this study, you must be our teacher and our guide. Well, Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to open our hearts, Lord, to your word this morning, opening your word to our hearts. Teach us, O Lord. Um, teach us things that challenge our hearts. Teach us things that encourage our hearts, O oh Lord. But teach us things about you, Father, that, Lord, our capacity to worship you would be deepened, our knowledge of you, Lord, and our relationship with you be deepened as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. The passage that we come to this morning has often been referred to as the restoration of Peter or Peter's restoration, if you will. It's a beautiful passage, um, indeed a very beautiful passage, but it's a passage that has a context. And um, I think for us to uh, get the best benefit from this passage, we need to look even at the extended context. If you have been in the church for any length of time, uh, and have listened to uh, a number of sermons, you, you may have come across the application that takes Peter's boastful words in the upper room and draws a straight line from those words to Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest uh, falling before a servant girl. Some of us have heard those comments, and sometimes those comments can be very harsh. Um, and what makes them, I think, sometimes so harsh is they're lacking in context. You know, they're lacking in context. There are a lot of moving parts going on here, and I think to understand this, we need to go and do just a little bit of work on the context to see these uh, moving parts. And that's why uh, we had brought in the uh, 
the Luke text, which we're going to turn to in a moment. But before we do that, uh, some of you were around when we were studying John 13, when we were all the way back there. And if you turn with me back there uh, right now, there you see, you know, this, these are events that are taking place on the Thursday before Jesus' um, crucifixion, the night that he was betrayed, as we often uh, call it. And there Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And in verse 21, uh, we find Jesus afterwards saying uh, that we find Jesus is troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And we've looked at this text quite a bit through the course of our study. And I think that if we were uh, able to talk to the disciples uh, in the aftermath of this night, I think that they probably would have said something like this. And this is conjecture on my part. But I think they would have said something like, you know, we've never had a more intimate time with the Lord than that night. Uh, but that having been said, it was an emotional roller coaster. Because it wasn't, a, it, was, it wasn't only just an intimate time, but it was also a time of great anxiety and great insecurity. Because not only did Jesus wash their feet and show such great love and servitude to them, he makes the announcement that one of you will betray me. And furthermore, he makes the announcement in verse 33. He says, little children, a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So they're not only wrestling with the fact that one in their midst is going to betray Jesus, they're also wrestling with the fact that one of them is going to betray, or one of them, um, uh, or that Jesus is going to depart from them. I'm sorry, that Jesus is going to depart. Now, in verse 36, we have Peter's words here. Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. You will follow afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, uh, we have looked at this material. This is for, if you've been around for this study for any length of time, this should all just be a review because uh, we've looked at this over and over again. But there are still some other moving parts here that um, we do well to pay attention to. And for that, if you will return back to Luke 22... Uh, here is Luke's account of that same night. And uh, on that night, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which we're going to come to this morning. And right after he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So this is Luke's account of that night, of what's going on that night. He says in verse 22, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now in verse 23, we see they begin to question one another, which one of them it could be who is going to do this. And uh, we don't need to turn there, but from the other gospel writers, we know that uh, at first they want to know who it is, but uh, the anxiety it segues into an insecurity because they, they actually begin to question themselves and they begin to say, is it I, Lord? Could it possibly be me? Jesus doesn't answer. In verse 24, strangely enough, we find a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, you know, 
I guess we could laugh about this, but it's true. And, you know, it's like they're going from discussing which one's going to be the worst to which one's going to be the best. And I think we do really well to stop right here and make some application of this because what's interesting here, especially if you look at verse 28, Jesus says to them, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. These folks have left everything to follow Jesus. They've made sacrifices to follow Jesus. And in fact, their presence in Jerusalem, they're very aware that it is dangerous to go to Jerusalem. In fact, doesn't Thomas say, listen, okay, if you're going to Jerusalem, we're going to go with you even if we must die. They recognize that there's a lot of danger in being in Jerusalem. And of course, there's a lot of danger for them to be with Jesus in Jerusalem. So what do we have here? We, we have a, a lot of sacrifice. We have a lot of commitment. We have willingness to, to go with Jesus, even to a place of harm's way. We have communion with Jesus. Yet even in the midst of all of this, we have this worldliness. And in fact, the component that's probably most important is the component that's missing, and that's humility. Now, there's quite a lesson for us. I mean, we can be, we, we can be committed to getting our theology right. We can be committed to deepening. Last week we were talking about a more tangible communion with Jesus. We can be committed with that. And I, I, I think I'm safe to say there isn't anyone in here this morning that doesn't want a more tangible communion with Jesus. We can be committed to sacrificing. We sacrifice ties. We sacrifice time. We can be committed to all these things. Yet at the same time, strangely enough, there can be great worldliness in our heart, worldliness of pride, can't there? Someone will say, well, this is all pre-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I know you could make that argument, but let's think about our lives. Too often it's the case, isn't it? Like right now is probably the easiest time of the whole week for us to say, you know, Lord, I am committed to you. I feel close to you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you ever notice that a lot of times when we have some of the greatest experiences with the Lord on Sunday, within a couple of hours of, of leaving here, you're, you're, you're almost amazed by what comes out of your mouth or almost amazed by what goes, enters in your heart by way of thought. Have you ever had that experience? And here we have this humbling thing, this humbling thing that no matter, you know, here we see the disciples, they're so close to Jesus, they're discussing, they're discussing who is the worst, and in the next breath, you find them discussing who is going to be the best. This really, we some point, we need to, to take time and, and preach this text and spend all morning on this text because the particular hour that we're in right now is an hour where everyone is crazed with stardom. You ever notice that? The, the, the term rising star is just something that we, we find everywhere. Everybody wants to be a rising star. And you have YouTube and you have all of these various uh, things. One of the things that makes them so popular is there's a vehicle in which you can maybe climb aboard and become this rising star. So we're constantly in danger. Now, what is, what is, what is uh, driving that? It's pride. We want to be better than the rest of those who are around us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're all equally guilty of this. But I am suggesting it's the air that we're breathing. And, of course, there's going to be some guilt um, of this in each one of us. Uh, one of the last things to, to be slain in our heart is, is pride, isn't it? But it's the very thing that the evil one injects into the human race, if you will, in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? 
Now, um, we find this dispute breaking out. How does Jesus respond to it? Verse 25, Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. What fitting words as we're facing an election. Uh, what fitting words if our leaders would take note of these things. Jesus says in verse 27, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Well, in the world's eyes, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's the master who reclines at the table. But notice what Jesus says next. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. And in our study of John, we saw that Jesus, what does he do? He takes the, the, he takes the assignment that would only be reserved for the lowliest of servants, and he proceeds to wash the, Jesus, the disciples' feet. He says in verse 29, I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, well Jesus no sooner says those, but then look at verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, what is going on there? What's going on there is the first point I want to make this morning. Is that as believers, we're indebted to Jesus for an explanation. An explanation. What do I mean by that? There's a moving part going on here that is affecting Peter. And for that matter, it's affecting Thomas. You remember when we were talking about Thomas and doubting Thomas. And one of the things that I really wanted to do when we were developing Thomas is not to stand here and slam Thomas, but to actually try to, as best we can, to walk in his sandals. Thomas was a man of crushed spirits and dashed hope, wasn't he? And how does Thomas... Thomas holds out in believing for a little bit. And, and that's exactly how some of us are. That's exactly how some of our constitutions are. That's, that's how some of our wiring is when, our, when our, our hopes have been crushed and dashed. But there's another moving part going on here that is really, really important. And we're indebted to Jesus for the explanation of that moving part. And it is the activity of Satan. The activity of Satan. What is Jesus showing us? Jesus is showing us that there is an invisible world that is at work attempting to destroy all that God is building. Now, I think all of us know this. Our culture has largely left that. You see so many, you see so much today. I mean, our society is moving in, it's incrementally moving in increased Satanism and increased, it's becoming diabolically more and more as we go. Don't flirt with it. That's exactly where it's headed. Um, so, you know, with a lot of the television programs and a lot of things you see, you, you can see, oh, you know, this, this demonic realm isn't all that bad. It's, it's interesting. It's this, it's that. Well, look at the words of Jesus here. Satan has demanded to have you. And one of the amazing things about here, and we have seen this in our study of John's gospel, is that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, doesn't he? We're going to see this when we go back to Peter and Peter's response to Jesus. But before we get to there, you remember, and in, in all the way back in John chapter 2, we find that there were many who believed. It says there were many who believed in Jesus when they saw his signs. Yet there was a problem, wasn't there? Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. In other words, he knew their faith wasn't real saving faith. 
But the point for this morning is he knew what was in their heart. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. But there's also an angelic realm out there. There are holy angels in heaven. Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of their hearts as well. Sometimes it's staggering to us to to realize that Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of all 7 billion of us on the planet, and we hear that all the time. But have you ever thought about this? He also knows the thoughts and intentions of the myriads of angels that are in existence in heaven. That is staggering, isn't it? But we also know that not all the angels stayed in heaven, did they? Some fell. And what caused their fall? We know it was pride. That's what caused their fall. And there's this whole, there's myriads of demonic angels, this whole realm of demons, if you will, led by Satan himself. And Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of their hearts as well. And we're indebted to Jesus for this explanation. We have three enemies. We have the world, we have the flesh, and we have the evil one, don't we? Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the principalities of this present darkness and this evil age. And what is Jesus bringing up to the to the disciples here? He says, "Behold, Satan has demanded to have you." Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of Satan. Jesus knows his movements. His movements are invisible to us. We don't know his movements, nor do we know the movements of his demons. They're invisible to us. We don't know their movements. We only know the effects that those movements have. It's like the wind. Jesus talks in regards to the work of the Holy Spirit in John 3. He says it's like the wind. No one knows where it's coming from. No one knows where it's going. But you can see the trees moving, can't you? You can see the effects of them. Satan is a very powerful enemy. He is so powerful that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that he has blinded, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the wonderful things of Christ, hasn't he? Imagine being so powerful you could blind this entire world. Now, he's no match for Jesus. He's no match for Jesus. But as Luther says in his hymn, um, on earth, Satan has no equal, does he? Jesus is pointing the disciples, he's pointing their attention to this demonic realm. He's pointing them to the movement of this realm. And that's one of the moving parts that's involved in the fall of the disciples and especially the fall of Peter. Notice that Satan demanded to have you. Now, if you have an ESV open, and if it has this apparatus in it, you'll have a footnote right there. And if you follow the footnote to the margin, you'll you'll see the Greek word for you twice in this verse is plural. You know, in the English language, we've lost the ability to distinguish, distinguish between you singular and you plural. It's you both ways. But what the translators want us to realize is this you here is plural. And I think without that, we would think of it singular because the address is Simon, Simon, which is interesting. Notice it doesn't say Peter, Peter, or Cephas, Cephas. It says Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon. Satan demanded to have you plural. Perhaps this translation will be really helpful. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. 
That would be a really good translation of that verse. He demanded to have them all. And we know that Satan does take out one of them, doesn't he? How frightening is that? There are 12 men in the room, and one of them indeed falls. Irreparably, he falls. And look at the metaphor that Jesus uses. He says that Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. What is that all about? Well, the, the, you know, if you ever see pictures of the wheat, wheat was such an important product in this ancient culture. And you have the grain of wheat and you have the chaff that's around it. And in harvesting that, that, uh, that uh, um, the wheat, they had to separate the wheat from the chaff and they would have these sieves or they were often referred to as fans. You'd put the, 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 uh, the crop on top of this screen, if you will, and you would shake it. You know, um, I, I have two illustrations from childhood that I think really brings this to the fore. One is my, my dad used to use a sandblaster. You know, you, if you want to prepare metal to be painted, it's one of the best ways to do it is to use this sandblast, to blast it with sand. And um, oftentimes we would gather that sand back up, and before you could use it again, you had to sift all the, all the debris out of it. Um, to use it again. But maybe a better illustration is my grandfather's. Many of you know he was a bricklayer. And a lot of times he'd have sand left over from a job. You know, mortar is comprised of sand and mortar mix and water. And he would have sand. And when they had sand left over, they'd throw it away. They'd pile it up next to his garage. And to his credit, he used to let us as kids play in it. Um, you know, we'd play in the sand. Now, before that sand could be used, it had to be sifted. You had to make sure that you got all the rocks out of it. Why? Because the, they're, they're, you, you mix this mortar and you put this mortar on a course, you smear it on a block, and then you set the block down. If there's a rock there, you're not going to be able to level the block. Now, I'll tell you what, you want to make those guys really grumpy, really fast, serve them mortar that has rocks in it. Oh, my goodness. And you know what? To, to, to their credit... It's really hard on the bricklayer because block are heavy to begin with. And when you pick them, you know, and, and they get heavier when you smear the mortar on them and you stick them up and you set them on that course. Now, if you have to pull that back down, you have to really pull hard on that. You know, my grandfather was so strong. I never realized how strong he was till one day I reached out to grab one of those blocks to pull it off there for him. My goodness, that stuff gets a hold of those blocks really fast, really quick. And it's really hard on the guy laying, laying block if he has to pull that back off of there because he's pulling the mortar back off and it doesn't want to come apart. That's the way you want your wall to be anyways, isn't it? You don't want it to come apart. So it's important. And Pap had a sift made up. He had uh, four tube-of-fours tacked together with a screen on it. And you'd put that sift over a wheelbarrow or whatever your container you're wanting to catch the sand in. You'd shovel the sand on it and we would shake it. And you'd end up with the rocks. And you'd take the rocks and you'd put them over and you'd do this process again until you had enough sand to do whatever it was you were going to do. So this idea of shaking that sieve, Satan has demanded, in verse 31, Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan is about to shake this band of disciples. He's about to shake them violently. 
Now, we're indebted to Jesus for the explanation of this, aren't we? We must be mindful of this component, uh, this evil component, if you will. Uh, He doesn't just seek to devour uh, these 12 disciples. He seeks to devour every member of Christ's church, including us. Notice verse 32. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. And that's the second point I want to make this morning, is that we're indebted to Jesus for his protection. How wonderful that protection is. We're up against a foe that's too powerful for us. But we have an advocate. His name is Jesus. A lot of times when we think of the advocate, we think of the Holy Spirit, and that's correct. It's 100% correct. Let's not forget that Jesus is also our advocate. Jesus prays for his church. You know, it's always wonderful to get a note that, you know, once in a while I'll get a note, someone will say, you know, I'm praying for you. And I think I've brought this up before. There's, a, there's an attorney in Georgia, northern Georgia, actually Dalton. It's where my grandmother used to live. And every once in a while I get a note from him. I just got one this week. And it says, Rick, just wanted you to know I'm praying for you. I'm praying for the ministry at the park. He has, I got to meet him, actually, um, in, uh, what was it, March, I think, when we were down in Asheville. Uh, I got to meet him. What a wonderful, godly man he is. Um, I've received so many notes from him, you know, just letting me know that he's praying, uh, praying for the ministry here and praying for me. And It's wonderful to get a note like that, isn't it? I mean, sometimes... You know, when something happens in people's lives and you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just send them a note and say, you know, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. It really means a lot to most people. But how much more does it mean to know that Jesus is praying for you? We'll say, well, the text Rick says that Jesus is praying for Peter. You mean to tell me that Jesus is praying For me too, yes, because Hebrews 7.25 tells us that. That Jesus lives, unlike the earthly high priest, Jesus lives on forever to intercede for his people. If Jesus wasn't praying for us, we would be wiped out immediately. We would be gone immediately. If it weren't for his strong hand holding us, Amen? So we have his explanation. We have his protection. Now let's take a look at our third heading and go back to John 21 where we see his restoration. This is a beautiful text. And now I think we have a sufficient context to begin to look at this text aright. You know, we're told that when they had finished breakfast, this is John 21 verse 15, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, you see that Simon again? It doesn't say Peter, does it? It doesn't say Cephas. Peter means rock. It's from the Greek word Petra. It means rock. Cephas means rock. No, this is Simon, son of John. We we met Simon, son of John back in chapter 1 as Peter was first approaching Jesus. And here Jesus is using this language again. I, I, some, I, some, I have a sneaking suspicion this is kind of similar to what I heard as a young man when I was in trouble. It went like this, Ricky Lee. 
Now, some of you are probably reviewing the names that you heard uh, when you were in trouble. Mine was Ricky Lee. My grandmother was very fond of When I heard Ricky Lee, it was, okay. <laughs> You'd be reviewing all the things this could possibly be about. <laughs> Which one will it be? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's a, that's a strange, that, that first line. What do we make of that? Do you love me more than these? What is these? There's, there's three answers that are often given. I, um, you read the commentaries, you'll see there's three answers. They've been fishing all night, right? And, of course, these could be, you know, and sometimes, you remember, we've talked a lot about what are the disciples doing out fishing? Are they returning to, are they, are they falling and returning back to their own vocations? And I argued against that. Um, I argued against that. Um, but sometimes people say, well, these are fishing. You know, they've been fishing all night. That is part of the context. Do you love me more than this fishing business you've got going in here? Another uh, another. Uh, possibility is Peter's been with the other disciples. He's been with his comrades. Do you love me more than you love your comrades? That's another possibility, isn't it? But there's a third possibility, and it would go, do you love me more than your comrades love me? And I think that's the answer, and why do I think it? You don't need to turn there. But I'm going to read a verse that Matthew records for us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that we've been talking. It comes from Matthew 26, and it would be verse um, 33. You know, um, Jesus, is, Jesus says to them in verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, they're in Galilee. Now, they have all fallen. Uh, they've been gathered back up. They've been told to go to Galilee, and they're in Galilee waiting on Jesus, right? But Peter answers in verse 33. He says to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's a strong statement, isn't it? You know, we could jest and say, oh, you know, I, I get it with these other guys. They're going to fall away, but I am not going to fall away. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, you remember in an earlier, in an earlier message, I brought this up. Again, this is a warning against drawing that straight line from Peter's boastful words here on the, on the upper room to his performance in front of a servant girl in the high priest's court. We don't want to draw a straight line there. There's more moving parts here. We need to take them all in. Peter says, I'm willing to die with you, Lord. Does Peter love Jesus? There is no question that Peter loves Jesus because in a couple of hours from making this statement, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas leads in a band of soldiers, and scholars tell us that there's anywhere from 200 to 600 soldiers with Judas Iscariot, a combination of Roman soldiers and temple police. 
Now let's suppose we're only on the, on the minimal side here. Let's suppose there are only 200. Would anybody pull their sword out? Peter did. I'm willing to die with you, Lord. He made good on that promise. The man is no coward. Too often he's been accused of being a coward by people who have never even been put to the test. I think, you know, and I would be a little bit ashamed if I looked it back. I got to, you know, as you continue to do this year after year, you have a history of all these sermons, and many of them are on tape, and oh, I'd like to erase a lot of those. Maybe I said something like that once upon a time. I don't know. I don't remember. One thing I do know is, as we walk with the Lord and we walk with the Lord and we walk with the Lord, we face trials, don't we? And as we face trials, what does the Lord do? He strengthens us. But oftentimes He gives us a glimpse of our depravity. And you look down into your depravity and you say to yourself, wait a second, am I capable of this? And the answer is affirmative. Yes, you are. This hideous thought that just came in my mind, Lord, could I possibly be? And it's difficult to say. It's difficult to say because the, Satan can put these things in your heart as well. And it's difficult to say. Who's to say that it's yours or it's his? That's a difficult thing. That's a, see, there's another moving part here. The answer is never the, 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 the devil made me do it. The answer is never that snake made me do it. That's Eve's response in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? But the Lord will show us this depravity that's in our heart. And I don't think we know that when we first start out. Imagine if he showed us our depravity all at once. If he just opened up our hearts and showed us the depths of our depravity all at once, then we'd be like Isaiah crying out, woe is me, wouldn't we? As you walk for a while and you begin to see these things, well, then you suddenly start to see when you read the story, you start to say, you know something? I'm afraid there's a Peter in my heart. I think I see glimpses of a Thomas there too. And it's only until then that you're beginning to understand the passage. I think I see a Peter in my heart. He's unfaithful. I think I see a Thomas in my heart. He's skeptical. Peter is insinuating in Matthew 26, verse 33, that he loves Jesus more than his comrades do. They might all fall away, Lord, but I'm not going to fall away. Now, does he truly believe that in the moment he says it? I think so. I think he truly believes that, and I think he demonstrates great strength in the garden. But it's proud. This strength that's rooted in pride is not going to stand. You know, there's one old divine um, who put it this way. The purposes that issue from our proud hearts, he said something like this. They're like words written on the sand of the beach that are very quickly taken away by the tide. We go back to John 21 and we look at verse 15. 
And Jesus says, Simon, do you love me more than these? In other words, you've had some time to think about this, Simon. We've had a couple of events that have taken place. Do you still want to go there? Have you possibly reconsidered? Ouch, huh? Think about that for a minute. How does Jesus respond? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, yes, you know that I love you. So what's Peter doing? He's, he's pointing to Jesus' knowledge of his heart. Jesus has knowledge of the heart. In doing that, he's, he's, he's indirectly saying, you're God. Of course you know my heart. You are God. You know my heart. Jesus says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says to him a third time. And there we see Peter is grieved when he's asked a third time, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know everything. Pointing to Jesus and the fact that he is God in the flesh who does know everything. You know that I love you. Peter is an open book in front of Jesus, isn't he? And this is the posture that we have to have to be restored. We simply have to be an open book before the Lord where we hide nothing. And we say, Lord, here I am. And with all my imperfections, with all, and they are many, aren't they? Here I am with all my imperfections. Here I am with all my sin. Here I am. And, and, and the fact of the matter is Jesus, Jesus will not turn us away. He's full of grace. But he's also full of truth. He will tell us the hard things that we don't want to hear. But it's only for our benefit. This is a hard talk that Jesus is having with Peter. Would anyone else care to have this talk with Peter? I can tell you as a pastor, I'm often the one who's given the assignment to go have the hard talk. It's not fun. Because when you do it, you're mindful of your own sin. You know, you better be anyway. You'll be pointing no condemning finger at someone else when you're full of your own sin. Right? But that having been said, there is a Pharisee in all of our hearts, isn't there? This is uncomfortable stuff. Sometimes you'll hear this text preached, and um, maybe some of you have heard that there are different words used here for love. How many have heard that argument that there's, I'm seeing a couple heads shaking. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there's two different words used for love, and there's a nuance between the words. Um, you've never heard me say that. And I'll tell you why. I don't believe that that's accurate. There are two words being used here. It's agapao and phileo. The problem is, among the Greek translators, among the Greek um, scholars that are telling us there's a nuance, there isn't uh, unanimity among them as to what that nuance is. And if there's obvious nuance between these two words, then there ought to be an obvious answer as to what that nuance is. Sometimes it's said that agapao is this higher love, if you will. Phileo is a lower love. Some of have heard that argument. There are others who will advocate the exact opposite. So which is it? I, I think there's a better way to understand this. Jesus does use the word agapos in his first two uh, questions with Simon, and he uses phileo in the third. Um, but uh, what we don't ever hear is the fact that 
the word for no. There's two different words for no. And you don't hear scholars go on, okay, there's oidos and there's gnosko used in this very given passage. And there's also different words for sheep. The ESV is trying to bring it out with lambs and sheep. And we might say there's a slight nuance between lambs and sheep. Maybe we would say lambs are more endearing. Maybe. But it's not that big of a difference. And the idea is style here. Um, John has done this throughout his writings where he's used similes just for style and writing. So I don't... I think we're on some exegetical stilts when we try to make those distinctions, especially when we're not even, we can't even be agreed upon what those distinctions are. You know, phileo and agapao are both used in terms of love towards God and God's love towards us. You go through the Septuagint, uh, those, use, those words are used interchangeably. Uh, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, classical scholars, many of them now are saying they, they hardly determine a difference between the words. But notice that the questions are very clear. And notice that Jesus' response to Peter is always, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, or feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love love you. Take care of my people. Now, we don't have time to get into this. Our time is spent this morning. But one of the things that I'm really realizing as we, as we move to a close of 2022, um, so, you know, I, I think there's, there's quite a few people, I think, right now that they seem to be showing signs that they're coming closer and closer to making a profession of faith. But one of the things that I see that's common, and I see this more and more, is that it's one thing to profess faith in Christ in this current culture. And it's entirely another thing to have any desire to be an active part of the local church. It's almost like these are where once upon a time it was one and the same. As you profess faith, you came to church, you got baptized, you, you now are an active member of the church and you're a member of the body. That's the way it's supposed to be. But we're in such an anti-institutional and such a me-centered culture that um, I don't think that's even coming into the, into the play. Um, We don't have time to develop this, but notice the connection between Peter's restoration and the church. Let me just say this with a closing application. Do you love me, Peter? Serve my people. Do you love me, Peter? Serve my brothers and sisters. Do you love me, Peter? Serve my children. Edmund Clowney said many years ago, one of the first books, before I even knew who Edmund Clowney was, first books, it was an assignment given to me at Geneva to read some, uh, I didn't even have his book, I think I had some, uh, uh, some photocopies of one of the chapters from one of his books, but very early in that article, Clowney said the call to Christ is the call to service. I never forgot that. I just was so riveted by that comment, I thought, oh, Wow. That is so true. The call to Christ is the call to service. Now, who and what are we to serve? And what we have to understand is coming coming to Christ is being brought into a family, a family that each one of us has a charge to serve. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, 
for these three great things, Lord, that this text shows us. It shows us many other things, but for this morning, Lord, we're thinking of your explanation. There's a mighty component to Peter's fall that we didn't, I think that we, we know about. It's not new to us, but Father, how often we just brush it under the rug and it doesn't enter into our thinking that we can draw straight lines from boastful comments to, uh, to failure without taking all of these things into consideration, Father, is, is proof that uh, I think it goes over our heads just as it went over Peter's. Oh, Lord, thank you for this explanation that there is a powerful enemy out there who seeks to destroy us. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your protection, for you pray for us. And if you did not pray for us, if you did not hold on to us, we would be lost. We are more sinful than we can even begin to uh, realize. But you know the depths of our sin, which is amazing. You still love us. You still take us. You still make us your own. What wonderful compassion. But, Lord, you're willing to have the hard talks with us. Our hearts are, we love sin. We want to do things our way. And, Lord, while you're full of grace and compassion and truth, you're full, you're full of grace and compassion and mercy, you're also full of truth, Lord. You will not abstain from having the difficult conversations with us, nor should we abstain from having difficult conversations with one another. But show us how to do it, Lord. Show us how to do it in love, that we would love one another, Lord, as you have loved us. Father, we thank you for your protection, but we thank you, Lord, for your restoration. We thank you, Lord, for here we see you take the initiative in each one of these things. You take the initiative to explain. You take the initiative to protect, and you take the initiative to restore. Oh, what wonderful hands we find ourselves in when we find ourselves in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.